that through your word this morning, by your spirit, you might do those very things in each one of us. Thank you for meeting with each one of us this morning. You know where we are. You know the struggles that we're facing. You know that the weakness that we, you know of the weakness that we feel. And we come to you for strength. We come to you for hope. And so we pray that you would grant those things to us by your grace. We don't come claiming entitlement before you. We don't come because we deserve anything from you. We come again because you are such a good God. So we rejoice in you this morning and we pray that you might speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking this morning at Judges chapter 16, and we're coming to the close of the Samson saga, uh, the end of not only Samson's life and involvement uh, in the story, but also the, the end of the cycle of the judges that God has been using throughout this time period. That's not the end of the book of Judges, but it is the end of these judges that uh, God has been using, and we've marveled at how God has used such a man as Samson. And we will continue to marvel this morning uh, as he finally completes the mission for which God called him on the day of his death. Uh, And so we'll look at those things this morning. But before we do, I'd like to say a word concerning parabolas. Parabolas uh, are kind of this U-shaped curve idea, right? And uh, the reason that I start with getting you thinking about that image of a parabola is because I'm convinced that that is the shape of the Christian life properly conceived. The life that God calls his people to is a life that puts us down in order to exalt us later. Uh, The idea of humility comes into play in this picture. God calls us to be humble and to humble ourselves so that we might be exalted, so that God in the future will exalt us. And so that requires us to humble ourselves, bring ourselves down in this life, confident that God is the one who will raise us up and elevate us properly in the future. And the reason I want to start there is because that is very much not the shape of Samson's life as we've seen it. He doesn't humble himself throughout his life. We, see, we have seen him to be a very self-focused, self-exalting person. And God has used him anyway in the midst of his sinfulness, in the midst of his refusal to humble himself. But at the end of the day, Samson must be humbled for him to complete his mission. And it is God who will humble him. And so there's an edge of warning in the Samson story, an edge of warning that if you don't humble yourself, you can be sure that God will humble you in order to exalt you. And that can be very painful, as we've seen it to be in Samson's life, and we'll see it on, uh, in this story as it closes out. Samson's life has been marked by great expectations from the moment before his conception when the angel came to his parents back in Judges 13 and announced his birth. He was full of expectations and hope. High hopes for this man Samson called to be a Nazarite from conception. God imposed on him this vow where he was to spend his life abstaining from anything eaten or drunk from the grapevine. 
uh, abstaining from uh, touching dead things or dead people, keeping away from them, and also ultimately to refrain from cutting his hair or shaving his head. And what we've seen through the story so far is him thinking very little of that vow, thinking very little of that calling that God has laid on his life. He despises it at every point but one, his hair. Ironically, he has maintained his long hair and his shaggy, undoubtedly shaggy appearance throughout his life. But that too is coming to an end as we come to the conclusion of Samson's life story. And it's this Nazarite vow that's so associated with his calling and with his mission that has been really in the background of the whole story as we've observed Samson breaking the other two considerations of his vow quite blatantly and flippantly even. He seems to care very little for the requirements that God has called him to and ultimately he seems to care very little for the mission that God has called him to. The mission that was articulated by the angel as to begin to save the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines who are oppressing them and ruling over them at this time. Samson does have conflict and hostility toward the Philistines, but we've seen it to be motivated by selfish concerns only. He's not really concerned, it seems, to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines as he was called to do. He's concerned to protect his own honor and to uh, repay anyone who challenges him or offends him. And it happens to have been the Philistines that have gotten in his way so repeatedly. We come to the conclusion of the story and... Chapter 16 begins with things not looking very good at all. Uh, Let's consider the final stage of this story. We'll read chapter 16 together and then we'll walk through some of these details. So Judges chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. 
And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. And the Philistines seized him. And gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. 
And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Sorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. So the story begins in Gaza. And it is the gates of Gaza, Gaza's gates, that are the centerpiece of the story. But we get distracted a little bit the same way that Samson got distracted by the prostitute in verse 1. She's not really the focus of the story here, but a stopping point. We don't really know why Samson goes to Gaza. Gaza is one of the capitals, if not the capital, of the Philistine nation at this point, And he is way far away from home. We can presume, as we had a note at the end of chapter 15, that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. We can presume that the beginning of chapter 16 is toward the end of that 20-year period. And so 20 years has passed since... Samson killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Twenty years has passed since he had attempted to marry a Philistine woman and had that mess where he burned down the grain fields of the Philistines with 300 foxes. And now he goes into the capital city, maybe cocky and confident of his abilities and his safety, but there he's distracted. He saw a prostitute... It is his eyes that have been the trouble all along. Samson does what is right in his own eyes. And in that way, he reflects the people of Israel during this period. We'll read that phrase in the latter chapters of the book of Judges repeatedly, telling us that that's the problem with the people during this period. They have no king, and they do what is right in their own eyes. And so once you read chapter 17 to 21, it's almost like you need to go reread the book of Judges with that in mind. That's the explanation for why they do what they do throughout the book. And Samson is just one of them. He's just like them. He does what is right in his own eyes. And his eyes are often drawn to these Philistine women. So he goes to Gaza. He sees a prostitute. And then he pays for her services. The Gazites somehow found out about it. And this may suggest to us that Samson's not being very careful. Typically when men do things like this, they try to keep it hidden, at least. They try to keep it secret. But nevertheless, the Gazites, the citizens of the city, find out that Samson's there. And they attempt to trap him. They surround her place and surround, ultimately, the city. They set an ambush. They're ready for him when he comes out the next morning. But here it's Samson's eyes that have led him into sin. And we see at the end of the story, there's some poetic irony here to the judgment that comes against him. His eyes are gouged out by the Philistines. And it's only then, after his eyes have been gouged out, that he actually sees rightly. So there's an irony in the way his story ends. But here, in this place, we might suggest that he really should have gouged out his own eyes in the way that Jesus taught in order to refrain from doing what is right in his own eyes, which ultimately led to his final ruin. But he ends up dealing with these 
Philistines. This is the capital city of the Philistine territory, the Philistine nation. And they've, they think they've got him set up so that they can trap him and kill him. I'm not sure what they were thinking after the great strength that Samson has shown throughout the story. But nevertheless, they're going to give it a good shot. Uh, and they think, we'll wait till he wakes up in the morning and gets ready to leave. Well, surprise, surprise, he wakes up in the middle of the night and is ready to go. And they apparently are sleeping on the job. Uh, assuming that they'll awake at dawn and they'll be ready. And then he does this great feat of strength. Uh, It's just remarkable what is described here. And what's more remarkable may be what isn't said. We don't read of the Spirit rushing upon him to empower him for this. Now, at this point, I have to just think through this very carefully because it seems to me that what he does here is completely, absolutely, humanly impossible. The weight of this gate apparatus that he would have hoisted up on his shoulders would have been several tons. Several tons. We're talking thousands of pounds. It seems to me that on his own, by himself, that is a physically impossible feat. The physics just won't work for a human being to bear up the weight of that on his shoulders. And not only that, but he carries them all the way, it seems, to Hebron. Now, Hebron is a city that's in the territory of Judah, which is 40 miles away. So apparently, we are to believe that in the middle of the night, he gets up, he busts down the gate, puts it up, and the whole apparatus up on his shoulders, and he marches off 40 miles on foot. would have taken him several days to get there with this huge gate apparatus on his shoulders. So I have to think that somehow God is empowering this. There's some kind of miracle in the background of this uh, for him to be able to do this. He uproots the gates, the doorposts, and the heavy bar, and he marches off for 40 miles. Not only that, but the altitude increases as you go on this journey, about 2,500 feet above sea level. So we're going uphill all the way, 40 miles, middle of the night. You've got tons of weight on your shoulders. It is a remarkable feat. It is by far the most remarkable feat that Samson has accomplished according to the Scriptures. But what's the point? Why does he do this? Well, at one level, it is an insult and a direct affront to the Philistines. This is their capital city, and he's just busted down their defensive gates. He has shown quite clearly that they have no power against him. They cannot handle him. He is overpowering them at every level. But why does he take the gates to Hebron, specifically in the territory of Judah? Why there, of all places? If you remember back to chapter 15, the people of Judah had gone against Samson. 3,000-man army from Judah, they come to capture him and they turn him over to the Philistines. That was about 20 years ago, most likely. It seems that perhaps Samson is making a statement to the people of Judah by bringing the gates of Gaza to Judah. He's probably putting Judah on notice that he is again picking a fight with the Philistines and it'd be best if they kept their distance and didn't try to interfere So he does this great feat, and that seems to be the tipping point for the Philistines. And they realize that his strength is way beyond anything that they can handle. So they now think, think, we've got to figure out how to nullify his strength. We've got to figure out a way to overcome his power, or we can never defeat him. Well, the circumstances present themselves providentially in the woman of Delilah. Delilah, we are introduced to her in verse 4. 
And we are told, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. It's the first time that we're told that Samson loved a woman. He married the Philistine woman in, uh, from Timnah back in chapter 14, but we are never told that he loved her. She questioned his love for her, and he kind of showed that maybe he doesn't, but the text never says that he loved that woman. He saw that she was right in his own eyes, and he wanted her, but love is a very different thing. And so here, we're told that he loved this woman in the valley of Sorek. Sorek is a word that means vineyard. So this is Vineyard Valley. So again, Samson is kind of flirting with territory he should not be, uh, where he should not be, in the midst of a vineyard, where he's not supposed to eat any products of the vine. But here he is, he finds a woman, and he loves her in the Valley of Sorek. And she is, her name is Delilah, and I've referred to her in your sermon notes as a woman of the night. Now, by calling her that, I do not intend to uh, imply that she is a prostitute. That is often stated, but there's nothing in the text that tells us that she was, that was her profession or that she was that kind of woman. However, I'm, I'm intending to refer to the significance of her name, Delilah. Nobody knows for sure what her Hebrew name actually means, but it sounds like the Hebrew word for night. The Hebrew word for night is Lila, and her name is Delilah. And if you recall, Samson's name means sunshine. And so I think there's some significance here to seeing this night woman as the downfall of little sunshine. There's a message in the imagery of their name. So here we see the darkness of this woman overcoming the light that is supposed to be Samson. And so she overshadows and ultimately overpowers him. She is his ultimate downfall. And so the night falls on the daylight of Samson's life and Samson's strength. But notice also in verses 4 and 5 that there's no mention of marriage here. It's often assumed that that Samson marries Delilah, but the text doesn't say that. He merely loves her. And I think we have an example here of love but no marriage. Given the situation that unfolded in chapter 14, Samson tried to marry a Philistine woman, and that didn't go very well for anybody. And so I think he's essentially given up on the institution of marriage, you might say. He's essentially just said, you know what, I'm gonna, I, I love this woman, but let's not formalize it. Let's not ceremonialize it. Let's just be in love together. And uh, it seems that he either lives with her or he just keeps coming back to her house which is all remarkable given what's happening. It's at this point that we think about the big picture of the story and how it unfolds that you just have to be sad for how stupid Samson is. And you have to marvel at how dumb he really is. It's, it's amazing to think that he, can be not, that he can seem so naive that she's not out to get him, that she's not out to hurt him given the way she presents herself to him in this story. In verse 5, we're introduced to the, the plot that happens behind the scenes. So the, apparently, he didn't keep his love affair with this woman private in any way whatsoever, so the lords of the Philistine find out about it. This is probably referring to the five governors of the five great Philistine cities, and they find out that he's in love with this woman. And they, th- they see that as an opportunity because they've already recognized that Samson's got a weakness for women. And so they're going to try to exploit it. And so they go to this woman 
who is apparently a Philistine, though the text never tells us that either, but given his proclivity towards Philistine women only, we probably are right in assuming that. But they go to her in private, and they want her to see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. That's their goal. That's their objective. And they offer her an astronomically exorbitant amount of money, 1,100 pieces of silver. We don't know exactly what kind of coin this is, so it's uh, we have to be a little bit careful about trying to be exact on what kind of equivalence this is, but it is huge. There are five lords of the Philistines, so we're talking about 5,500 pieces of silver. One writer suggested we're talking like $15 million. This is a huge ransom price to get Samson. This is how big a problem Samson is for the Philistines. The lords of the Philistines are willing to part with 5,500 pieces of silver in order to see if they can get him down. And of course, she's going to accept that. That's going to set her for life. She will never need to marry. She will never need to depend on anybody else. She will be independently wealthy from this day on. She can have whatever she wants with that amount of money, to be sure. But notice in verse 6, as this whole cycle unfolds, she's not deceiving him about what she wants. She's actually being honest. Tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. That's actually the same Hebrew word that they use for humble you. She uses the exact language of their offer to her. She's not covering it up. She's not coloring it in a pretty light. She just bald-faced tells him straight away what she wants. She's being amazingly honest here. She's not trying to trick him. She just says... Tell me the secret of your strength. Tell me how you might be bound, tied up, and how you might be humbled. How's that going to work? She just tells him straight to his face. And we would expect, okay, you've got to be a little bit suspicious at this point. But no, that's why the narrator tells us up front, Samson loved this woman. And it reminded me of a line from one of my favorite movies. And I'm not ashamed to say this. Um... It's a 2005 adaptation of the Jane Austen book, Pride and Prejudice, which I've seen dozens and dozens of times, literally. And I'm not ashamed to say that that's my favorite movie, and I'm repeating that because I'm probably trying to convince myself that I'm not ashamed to say that that's one of my favorite movies. (laughs) But nevertheless, there's a line in it that rang in my head because, again, I've seen it so many times that it's actually not in the book uh, but it's reflective of what's going on here. There's a line in the story where one of the, in the movie where one of the characters says, we are all fools in love. And I think we can attest to that from human experience. In fact, there's even neurological studies that tell us what's going on in the brain when we feel those in love feelings. It can distort our judgment. And it can weaken our resolve in many ways. And, and so it is that we see that with Samson. He is acting like a fool here. Unable to see, unable to recognize the truth that she is out to get him and out to destroy him. The flip side of that coin is probably that he is overly confident in his own ability here. He's overly confident in his own strength that no matter what trap is set for him, he will be able to weasel his way out of it. But nevertheless, the way things unfold are just bizarre from this point on. It's amazing that he sticks with her and keeps letting her do this. So let's go through this really quickly. I'll just be... The, 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 situation that, the situations that he goes through here are real simple and straightforward and repetitive, so we'll just run through them pretty quickly. Round one, 
Samson answers the question just straight up, and he just bald-faced lies to her. He just plain lies to her. He's toying with her. He thinks this is a big game, and he plays with her, and he says, if I'm bound by seven fresh bowstrings. But notice, notice the exact way that he says that uh, in verse 7. If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings. So that's not just a generic they, I think. I think he, he knows at some level cognitively that... She's talking about how can the Philistines bind you? And he kind of admits that. But notice that the one who actually binds him is Delilah. She is the agent here who does this to him. She is the one who actually ties him up. She goes to the lords of the Philistines. She reports to them, this is the answer he gave, seven fresh bowstrings. They provide that for her. And then she ties him up and he lets her do it. Remarkable. She ties him up. And then she's got this ambush hiding in the back room. And then she kind of gives the key word. She's probably set up an arrangement where when you hear me say these words, that's when you need to get ready and come out and you can take Samson. And so she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And so he then just breaks free. So again, we see this feat of strength without any mention of God's empowering. But surely God is in the background enabling this to happen at this point. She, he breaks free of these bowstrings. They, they snap like flax. And the secret of his strength was not known. Now at this point, we would think, okay, surely, surely Samson realizes what's going on here. Now it seems that the Philistine ambush kind of stays hidden in the back room, so he doesn't know that they're back there ready to get him whenever his weakness is revealed. But nevertheless, you'd think, oh, surely, Samson, surely you get that this is not a, not a good situation for you to be in. No. Um, he just She comes back at him and she accuses him of mocking her and telling her lies, which is exactly the truth. He is mocking her and telling her lies. And then she just, you can admire her persistence at one level. She just keeps at him. Please tell me how you might be bound there at the end of verse 10. And so we go through round two. Round two is let's try new ropes. Now, we reading the story should know that this is not going to work very well because new ropes is exactly what the 3,000-man army from Judah used to bind Samson to no effect. And so she binds him with new ropes again. Uh, She probably doesn't know that that happened, but nevertheless, Samson is just playing with her again. So he's like, well, let's try new ropes and see how that works. So she does. But notice again, he says, if they bind me, in verse 11, if they bind me with new ropes, and then it's Delilah who is the one who actually ties him up with new ropes. So she ties him up again and again. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And again, snaps him like a string. And so she's going to go through and try again. So then in verse 13, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. So she drops the please from before. So there's no uh, semblance of politeness here. She's getting upset and frustrated, but she's still going after him. And now we see that Samson is getting desperately close to the truth. And we see how little he thinks of, again, this Nazarite vow that he's under. He is willing to play with it a little bit. So he starts to edge closer to the real answer to give away the secret. Now, we should remember at this point as well that Samson's actually been through something like this before with his wife from Timnah. Remember, she had had been 
threatened instead of bribed. She had been threatened to find out the secret, the answer to his riddle. And so she pushes him and pokes at him until he gives her the answer. And then disaster happens. But Samson has not learned from his experiences at all. And so he just keeps on letting her do this, and he even creeps up right close to the answer. Now he's talking about his hair, which is, this is significant at this point. So round three, pin the hair. So I, I suspect Samson sees in the room the setup of this weaving apparatus that's got the loom and the pin for kind of weaving together clothing. And he sees that, and he's like, that seems like a good idea. Let's say pin my hair to the ground, and, and then my strength will go away. That's awfully close to the truth, as it turns out. And so she does it again. Now, notice this time in verse 13, it's not if they, it's if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin. If you do that. So again, we're inching closer to the climax of all of this, and Samson is getting less and less careful about how this goes. And so she does that. She gets him to sleep, and then she pins his hair to the ground with this apparatus, and then she says the code word again, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And then he just jumps up, rips the whole apparatus from the ground, and he's fine. And so nothing happens from there. Well, now we finally come to the conclusion of the matter in verse 15. And now she pulls the great womanly strategy of manipulation that has destroyed many a man throughout history. Question his love for you. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? And at that point, she pushes the big red button. And Samson gives in at this point. He quest- she questions his love for her and... He will not have that. He truly, deeply loves this woman in some fashion, and he will not have that to be questioned. And so she pokes him, she prods him, she keeps pressing him in verse 16. It's the same language that was used back in chapter 14 with his wife from Timnah. She pressed him hard with her words day after day. So Samson either lives with her or he just keeps coming back for more. Day after day after day after day after day. And she keeps pushing and poking and prodding. And then finally, his soul was vexed to death. That's ominous. A little bit of foreshadowing there to be sure. But Samson is vexed to death. And by being vexed to death, he's tired of the game. He's going to give the truth. Shave my head. Shave my hair. And that is the truth. But at this point, we've got to wonder a little bit about what Samson really understands. We might have questioned throughout the story, did Samson know about his calling? Did his parents explain that to him because he seemed to care so little for the other elements of the Nazarite vow? But here it comes out of his own mouth that he's been a Nazarite to God from his mother's womb, from conception. But the only piece of that Nazarite vow that he has preserved to this point is that he hasn't cut his hair, hasn't shaved his face... And you've got to wonder at this point, does he recognize that his strength really comes from his commitment to God and God's commitment to him, or does he think rather superstitiously and magically that it's his hair that actually provides the power? Because you can be sure that's what the Philistines believe. This whole time, what they've been looking for and expecting is that there's some magic going on here. 
there's some kind of magic, physical peace that if we nullify that, then Samson will lose his power. And you've got to wonder if that's Samson's understanding too at one level. He mentions both his Nazarite calling and also that his hair hasn't been shaved as though the rest of the details of the Nazarite calling are not really relevant. It's just the hair piece that matters the most. And so you've got to wonder at this point what Samson really understands. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And it's at this point that Deli- the way he answers is totally different than before, and so she re- recognizes in that, he's told me the truth this time. She's, he's told me the truth this time. So she gets the Philistines. They're ready to pay up. She persuades them that he's told her the truth this time, and she's for sure of it. And then what happens next is a little bit unclear. Verse 19, I want you to look at it again. Uh, There's a couple of different ways to view this, um, and it's worded a little bit strangely so that it's hard to understand exactly what happened. She made him sleep on her knees. That part's clear. So she relaxes him to the point of sleep gets him comfortable and puts him out for the night. And then the ESV says, and most of our Bibles say something like, she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. So it seems like from that way of putting it that she summons somebody to come in and cut his hair off. Maybe she didn't feel confident in her ability with the shears, but she calls somebody to come in and do the job for her. But that's odd Not only given the pattern that we've seen from before, she is the one who does it in the previous three rounds every time. But also, the Hebrew here is actually much more clear that she is the subject of this verb. She is the one who shaves the hair. And so what's confused people, I think, is the introduction of a man here. So there's another way to view this that I think is probably more likely what happened. She called the man, literally, she called the man, and she shaved off the seven locks of his head. And so I think what's being described there is that she yells at Samson. She calls the man laying in her lap, Samson, are you awake? She wants to make sure that he's in a deep enough sleep that she can chop his hair off. I think that's all that's going on. She, she calls out to Samson, to the man lying in her lap, and then she cuts off his hair once, she realized, once he doesn't respond at that point. And then she began to torment him. That's, again, the same Hebrew word that we've seen a couple of times already for humble. She began to humble him with this act. And his strength left him. And so in verse 20, she gives the code word again. Philistines are upon you, Samson. And this time he wakes up from his sleep. And notice what he says. This is where we begin to question, what in the world is he thinking here? Maybe he's just groggy from sleep. But he says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But that doesn't make sense with what he just said. He said, if you shave my hair, my strength is gone. And so he wakes up. Surely he recognized that his head has been shaved. I mean, that's hard to imagine that he woke up and he just didn't recognize that his hair was gone. I doubt that very seriously. But... In that moment, I think he's expressing what we've seen all along, that he is way overconfident in his own strength. And so maybe he's thinking, my super strength has been taken away, but I'm still strong enough in myself to deal with this Philistine ambush. 
And so again, I think we're seeing his overconfidence on display, his pride in his own abilities on display for us here, the way that he wakes up. But the truth of the matter is, he's been abandoned by the Lord. He's been abandoned by the Lord, and so he can be bound by the Philistines. And that's what we see happen in these verses. He, and then we get the, the saddest words in the story at the end of verse 20. He did not know that Yahweh had left him. And that's another reason for us to question, does he even know that his strength comes because of his connection to God? He hasn't had a very positive relationship with the Lord. We haven't seen him doing much that would show us that he has a real relationship with God. God has chosen him. God has empowered him. God has used him repeatedly. But his responses to God have been ugly, disobedient, and all over the place rebellious. And so... He doesn't seem to be very aware of the truth of what's going on, spiritually speaking, that it's been God who's been doing all of this all along, empowering him for the things that he has done. So they capture him, they gouge out his eyes, and they bring him to Gaza, the capital city of the Philistine nation, again, because probably because of what he had done. He had destroyed their gates And that's a good place for them to get their revenge, to put him on spectacle in the city where he made such a fool of them. They're ready to make make a fool of him now. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Now, this is ironic. They're going to put him in prison here, and they have him ground in the mill, which is uh, work normally a woman would uh, accomplish and would be responsible for. And so they put him to shame by making him do that. Uh, working in the mill. But it's also significant because he is the one who destroyed the grain fields of the Philistines all those years ago, probably. And so it's fitting, in a certain sense, there's again a poetic irony here, that he is now grinding grain at their mill in this capital city of the Philistines, whereas 20 years before he had been responsible for destroying a whole crop of grain. And so now he's put to work building up their crop of grain from the capital city. Nevertheless, verse 22, we're supposed to see a a glimmer of hope here. A very strange one, but a glimmer of hope. The hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, it's at this point the word began takes on significance because that is the language that was used in his calling. He would begin to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so this little note... See, he hasn't done that yet. As many Philistines as he's killed over the years of his judging and before, he hasn't begun to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That has not happened yet. But it's at this point that the beginning of the regrowing of his hair is going to be the key to the beginning of his deliverance of the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So, we go to the final sections of the story, verses 23... Um, Before we do that, let me just draw a little bit of an application because I think we should see this um, as a a warning for us. This abandonment of God, this um, reality that Samson's so oblivious to what's going on in his life spiritually that he's presumed on the relationship that he has with God. And I think that's something we shouldn't pass over too quickly. The words at the end of verse 20 are tragic, They're the piece of the story that is the most grievous, probably. And I think we should read these words as a warning. A warning, first of all, to the people of Israel who would have read these words first. 
a warning to the people of Israel who often found themselves deceiving themselves about their relationship with God and assuming that they were safe and secure in the midst of their rebellion and disobedience. Recall the haunting words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7, 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. You see, in the years leading up to the Babylonian invasion, the Jewish people had come to see the temple as a sort of magical talisman to protect them from bad things, a protective charm of sorts. As long as we've got the temple, we're safe. We're even safe from God's wrath. That's the way they had come to view the temple in those days. But I think this warning comes across to us as well. Because we have warnings like this in the New Testament that are delivered to churches. And it was to a church, a group of people who claimed to follow and worship Jesus and met together Sunday after Sunday that Jesus addressed these words from Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That could be an apt description of Samson at the end of this story. That church, meeting together regularly in the ancient city of Laodicea, has many daughter churches in our day. May the Lord preserve us from becoming so self-deceived by the value of our property, the construction of a new building, the number of people filling this room, that we stop seeing clearly our constant need for more grace and dependence on the Lord and on His presence with us. That's the key thought here. Now back to Samson. The story ends tragically. The story ends grossly. We see Samson entertaining them to death, as the saying goes. In verses 23 and 24, we're introduced to the Philistine god Dagon, or Dagon, you might have been used to saying it. Dagon is the god responsible for grain. And so here we see a picture of Dagon's revenge. If you remember again back to chapter 15, Samson was responsible for destroying an entire year's grain crop for a portion of the Philistine nation. The Philistines would have seen the capture of Samson, the subduing of Samson, and the imprisoning of Samson here as a picture of their grain god getting personal revenge against Samson for destroying that grain crop. And so we see Dagon's revenge here. They take him to one of the temples. They offer a great sacrifice and throw a big party and celebrate that their god, Dagon, has delivered Samson into their hands. Irony upon irony. Because the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the one who truly has handed Samson over to the people, to the Philistine people here. But then in verse 25 to 27, we see Samson's Entertainment. And I put that word in quotes because I believe our narrator here has crafted a word play for us. You don't see it in English. There's nothing there to pick up on. But they called Samson out of the prison. Uh, they, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. The Hebrew word translated entertain or make us laugh is the word. If you move a single dot 
above one of the letters, ever so slightly to the right, the word means crush us. I think a Hebrew reader would have picked that up at least on the second reading, maybe not the first. So they say, call Samson that he may entertain us, or call Samson that he may crush us, which is, of course, what he ends up doing. I think the narrator has put that little delight in there for us to pick up on a little bit. So they call him out to entertain, to entertain them, and he does. They bring him out, and then at the end of verse 27, we're told that the house was full of men and women, All the lords of the Philistines, the five governors of the great Philistine cities, were there. And on the roof, kind of watching down below what was unfolding, were 3,000 guests, men and women, who looked on while Samson entertained. Well, finally then, we see Samson's revenge. Samson's revenge. And like a good entertainer, he's going to bring down the house. (laughs) And so Samson, in verse 28, we see him praying. And this is a good thing. We see him praying. And we might need to think a little bit about how this prayer compares to the prayer that he prayed back in chapter 15. So here he prays, O Lord Yahweh. Now in your Bible you probably see something like, O Lord, with a capital L and lowercase o-r-d, and then God, all caps. That is another way of our English Bibles telling us that they're that this is the divine name, the Hebrew name that God revealed to his people, to Moses, back in Exodus 33, Yahweh. Normally we see that as Lord, all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But here, the ESV and other versions that put it, O Lord God, they, they want to avoid saying, O Lord, Lord. Um, and so they, they use all caps God to bring over the Hebrew name. It's kind of confusing to us, um, but that's what they're up to. Or the NIV says, O Sovereign Lord, with all caps, Lord. And so they're saying the title Lord means sovereign, and that's true. But it's kind of like what we would think in British English today, at least. We don't do this much in American English. But in British English, Lord is a still active title. and We would call somebody like Lord Cornwallis or something like that. Well, here we have Lord Yahweh. That's kind of the idea. But in, say, in calling him Lord, addressing him this way, Samson is expressing great humility. He's actually looking up to God rather than kind of putting himself on an equal plane with God. He's addressing him with great respect, whereas in chapter 15 when he prayed, he sounded like a whiny, complaining baby, and very entitled, uh, thinking that he deserved for God to give him water after this great victory that he's won. Here, that's gone. And so instead he prays, O Lord Yahweh, and then note the word please twice. That's always a good indicator of humility. Say please. Please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God. One more time. Strengthen me that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, still he's got that motivation of vengeance that we've seen throughout the story. So we see something good here. We see some, Samson has been humbled, but Samson is still Samson. He's still got a problem with this attitude of vengeance and revenge. So there's, there's a blending here. Samson has made progress. Samson has been humbled, but his prayer is not perfect. And that should be encouraging to you. I've reminded you several times, and I'll probably keep doing it until the end of my life, um, God doesn't answer our prayers because we pray properly, because we pray the right words, or because we get it right, or because our attitude is even right. 
God is not dependent on that for Him to answer our prayers. He answers our prayers because He delights to answer our prayers. Period. And He does that with Samson here. Samson's prayer is not perfect, but He's come a long way. And in fact, this is the place where I think the author of the Hebrews sees Samson's faith on display for the first time in the story. Samson has been humbled. He expresses faith. He asks God to bring about an empowering that would bring success to him. Hebrews 11.32, you remember, lists several of the judges. Instead of explaining the significance of what they did by faith, we get a little summary in the next few verses with little phrases. And we're not told who did what, which phrase applies to which person. And one of the phrases in Hebrews 11.34 would have been uh, becoming mighty in war. And we might have thought that's the one that applies to Samson. But no, I don't think so. Instead, there's another phrase in Hebrews 11.34 that applies to Samson. He was made strong out of weakness by faith. He expresses his faith here in this great prayer, even though it's mingled still with an attitude and a desire for vengeance, and yet God strengthens him in his weakness, and this is the moment where he accomplishes the purpose for which God had called him. As he humbles himself and trusts God to do this, Samson's able to literally bring down the house. Sadly, the last note on his life before the funeral, the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life, is a sad epitaph on the life of Samson. He was more useful to God in dying than he was in living. He was more productive for God in dying rather than living. That, too, is a warning for us. We don't want to live that way. We want to be fruitful for God in the way that we live, not just bringing glory to God in the way that we might die. And so it's a sad note to end the story on, but that is Samson's life, a tragedy, a great tragedy. God used him. God empowered him in spite of himself. God used the villain of the story, the worst judge of them all, to bring about not even a great deliverance, a small deliverance, the beginning of deliverance. It is Samuel, who's living at the same time as Samson, I think. It is Samuel who will actually end the 40-year period of oppression of the Philistines, just a few months after this event. But it's King David who will finally put an end to the Philistines once and for all as far as their opposition against God's people is concerned. Samson made a beginning here on the day of his death. He began to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines, but it is Samuel and David ultimately who will finish the job. Well, as we think about the broader story here and the the conclusion of Samson's life and we draw out something for ourselves, the main theme that runs through this story pretty clearly is the theme of being humbled, being humbled. And it's a humility that leads to an exaltation, leads to a victory. And so we think about being humbled to be exalted. So let me draw out three points with reference to that idea. Humbled to be exalted. First of all, we've pointed out on several occasions how even Samson, even Samson, the vilest of the judges, foreshadows our great Savior Jesus. Uh, We need to see it that way. And uh, we've been right to observe some connections there. And there's one more yet still or two more at least, Uh, Jesus humbled himself to be exalted. And so this is, again, 
a reflection, kind of a negative example. Samson didn't humble himself. God had to humble him. But the reality is, humility must precede exaltation. And that was true for Jesus, just as much as it's true for anybody else. Jesus humbled himself to be exalted. Philippians chapter 2 tells us about this. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, probably familiar words to you. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is where we see the, par- the parabola shape of Jesus' life. He was exalted to the highest place for all eternity, and yet he chose to humble himself by becoming human. And then he humbled himself even further by going down even to death. And then that humility goes down even lower because it was the shameful death of crucifixion. And so Jesus is the one who humbles himself most supremely. He starts at the very highest point and comes down to the very lowest point so that he then might be exalted, the other side of the J-curve or the U-curve, all the way up back to the highest possible place at the right hand of God. And so Jesus' life, Jesus' experience is the one who gives us the proper shape of the parabola here. He is the one who humbles himself to be exalted. And it's, it's a model for us. It's an example for us. And Paul explicitly makes that clear in this passage by introducing this little poem about Jesus in verse 5, Philippians 2.5. By telling us that we must humble ourselves in order to be properly exalted. So Paul introduces this song with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus today, this way of thinking belongs to you. This way of thinking belongs to you. It's yours. And Paul says, live it out. Live it out. Experience it in your day-to-day by following Jesus in the downward cycle of humbling yourself with the confidence, the guarantee that God is the one who will properly exalt you in the future. That raises the question for us, how do we do that? What does that look like on a practical day-to-day basis? Let me give you three ways, three aspects of what it means to day-by-day humble ourselves. First of all, it means to admit our sin, to admit sin. Remind you of the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. Remember the Pharisee comes in to pray to God. He sees the tax collector off at the distance and he prays, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. Well, Jesus then draws attention to the tax collector himself in Luke 18, 13, and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, like the Pharisee, like Samson, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, Jesus wants us to be like the tax collector. 
to think about and openly, actively admit our sinfulness, admit that we are sinners. You know, we of all people on the planet, those of us who are following Jesus, who trust in Jesus, we have nothing to fear in confessing our sin. Nothing to fear. We are the people who are free to admit our sinfulness with specificity because there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to fear from God. Therefore, we are totally free to admit our sin freely, clearly, specifically, confess our sin, not just to God, but to each other. We've got nothing to fear. Now, sure, people are not as gracious as God. God won't condemn us, but people might. But if He won't condemn us, maybe, maybe it's okay for us to take a risk and be honest about our sinfulness with each other too. Maybe it's true that our brothers and sisters at least recognize just how sinful they are too and won't rise up in condemnation against us. Just maybe. We ought to be free to admit our sin, and that is a way of humbling ourselves. We should admit our sin freely. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sin, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, right? We are free to admit our sin, and we have to be humble to do that. To humble ourselves is to admit our sin. Secondly, we humble ourselves by repenting. So not just admitting and confessing our sin, but turning away from it. James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. James says to Christians, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. This image of being wretched and mourning and weeping is an image for repenting for your sin, grieving your sin, not just admitting that it's happened in a callous way, but admitting it with grief with remorse, with feeling, and then turning away from it, rejecting it, repenting, abandoning it. That is an aspect of humbling ourselves before the Lord. The promise is He will exalt you. This is one of around 13 times that I've counted in Scripture where God promises to exalt His people. And so if God has promised to exalt you, then you don't need to exalt yourself. If God has promised to exalt you, then you don't need to exalt yourself. Samson exalted himself throughout his lifetime, and God had to humble him at the end. Likewise with the Pharisee in Luke 18. He was exalting himself, drawing attention to his good deeds before God, to his self-proclaimed, self-perceived righteousness. He exalted himself, and he received Jesus' condemnation. But if God has promised to exalt us, then it is utter foolishness to waste our words, waste our energy to spend on trying to make ourselves look good to other people. Indeed, we should eagerly, eagerly, and fearlessly humble ourselves by admitting when we sin and then seeking to turn away from our sin. That is what it means to humble ourselves. One more, third way that we can humble ourselves and has significant relevance for this week, we give thanks. 
We give thanks. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul tells us that we should be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I see humility at play here because if you are genuinely able to say, God, thank you for this, whatever this is, you're saying, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I didn't do anything to get this, to earn it, to acquire it. God has given me a gift freely. We have this holiday on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Once a year, we celebrate Thanksgiving in this country. And I'm glad for it. I'm even grateful for this day. We have a day where you don't have to go to work. You get to gather together with family in a way that you normally don't do. Some of you probably do have to go to work. Sorry about that. But generally, we don't have to go to work. We get together with family in a way that we don't normally get to. There'll be a football game on in the afternoon. I'm even glad for that, for those of you who will enjoy it. These are all good things. But for the Christian, Thursday ought to be just another day. We ought to be people who are expressing our gratitude verbally, with our mouths, with our tongues, with our words, every day, all the time. Paul says, always and for everything. I don't think he left anything out. Think about it like this. If we took this one day, this one Thursday, and we took the whole day, 24 hours, and you cut yourself off from family, you fasted from all the food that everybody else will be eating. You even skipped the football game. Shocking. And instead of doing those things, instead, you devoted every moment of that day to writing down and seeking to express gratitude to God for, for specific things that He has done for you. You would run out of time. Not only that, you wouldn't be able to think of all of them because God is doing things for you that you don't know about. All the time. So when Paul says, give thanks to God for everything, give thanks to God always and for everything, there's a good reason for it because God is always doing good for you. All the time. Every moment of every day, He's doing good things in your life. Do you believe that? We should give thanks to God always because God is always doing good things for us. Even in the hard and painful things. Even in the suffering, the terrible things that we experience. The question is, are you able to look for the good that God is doing even in the midst of pain? Even in the midst of loss? Even in the midst of suffering? The promise of Scripture is that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, He is working all things together for good. All things to recognize those things and to actually say with your mouth, thank you, is to humble myself and to accept the way that God chooses to work in my life, even when I don't understand all the reasons or why it looks the way that it does. Let me say a personal word here and a little bit of a shameless plug I hope that you will join us Wednesday night for the Thanksgiving Eve service here. I know it might be hard 
for those of us who have kids. It's going to be hard for me to get out of the house with my daughter. But you all are my family now. And I want to spend time with you. (laughs) And I'm grateful that someone has invited us into their home for Thanksgiving Day. And we'll be celebrating and giving thanks with them. But I hope that you can come out Wednesday night and be with us as a family here. Um, I'll be sharing a, a small devotional word about the experience and importance of gratitude in my own life. But I really want to be with you. And so I hope you'll come. I, I know that may be hard as you prepare for Thursday for the big, the big event. Food, cooking, and preparing for guests and things like that. But I, I hope you can find a way to prioritize coming and being with us together as we celebrate communion together. I think it'll be a really special time, and I'm looking forward to it. And I I really want to spend time with my family here. You are my family, and I'm so grateful for the the ways that we've been loved and accepted into this family. This is an opportunity for us to enjoy that together. And so I hope you'll come. Recognize, whether you come or not, that you owe God thanks for everything good that's in your life. And so I genuinely hope that you'll all have a great Thanksgiving Day on Thursday. I hope that you'll have a good and enjoyable time with your families. And I know for some of you that probably won't happen. Holidays can be really hard with your family. But in the midst of that, even in the midst of the tension, I hope that all of us will be able to express genuine gratitude for the good things that God is doing in our lives because He's up to good things. He just is. And I hope that you can see some of it. Now, if you struggle to think of things to thank God for, let me give you the one that could be at the top of the list. Thank God for the, the victorious defeat. The death of Jesus that sets us free from our slavery to sin and death. Thank God that Jesus was better than Samson that he maintained his faith and obedience to God perfectly and consistently throughout his life. And thank God that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, ruling sovereignly over this world and over the details of your life. He will certainly finish the work he started in your life and in the world. We began our time this morning talking about a parabola. Let me conclude by talking about a circle. It takes humility to express gratitude. But I'm convinced that a key strategy to cultivating humility in our lives is to express gratitude. You need humility to give thanks, and when you give thanks, you become more humble. So let the circle never be broken, for it is our destiny to give thanks, not just once a year, but forever and ever to our great God. Let me close with the words of Psalm 79, 13. Let this be our anthem. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Would you pray with me? Father, we do indeed have much to be grateful for. Thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for continuing to love and express your grace to us by giving us such abundant gifts.